Hi there and welcome to another podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. This interview is another from the great series recorded at the 2021 ANZICS Clinical Trials Group meeting in Noosa, Australia. Joining me today is Dr. Aidan Burrell, an intensivist from the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. He joins me today to talk about his work in the REDEEM project, which is exploring the role of early intervention with ECMO in patients with ARDS. Aidan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Great. Thanks for having me. Aidan, ECMO is an attractive therapy for severe respiratory disease. What can you tell us about the way that it's currently used in this context? Yeah, so um, ECMO um, has got a role in treating patients with very severe or refractory um, uh, respiratory failure, and international guidelines support its use for that role. Um, There's been a couple of major trials that also um, that would support its use when you combine them in a meta-analysis. So um, I think as the current state of play is that it, it has a role in the very severe end of um, uh, hypoxic respiratory failure and ARDS. What's the, the status of the, the current evidence base related to its use in severe ARDS? So the um, most important recent trial was the EOLIA trial that came out of France um, in 2000, I think it was 2018. Um, and that in, in that trial, they randomized very sick patients with PF ratios of under 80 um, to either um, rescue ECMO uh, or to um, sort of standard guideline-based treatments. And in that, in that study, they, uh, they found a numerical difference that was not quite statistically significant. I think their primary outcome was survival at, at 60 days, and, and that was a p-value of 0.09. Um, but for, for most people, the, the effect size was very large, and um, most people sort of interpreted that as more of a positive study. But interestingly, when you combine it with the other major trial, the CESAR trial, which was an older UK study, uh, then the the difference in mortality comes out um, significantly. And that's been shown in um, several meta-analyses just recently. Aidan, is there a reason why this has been, to this point at least, reserved for the more severe end of the spectrum? Look, I think that's a good question. Um, traditionally, ECMO's always had a, a bit of a bad name because of complications that occur. Um, patients on ECMO bleed a lot. Uh, they develop infections. One of the challenges has always been is teasing out how much is the ECMO itself doing that and how much is this just a very sick cohort of patients that have these problems. And interestingly, um, some of the more feared complications like intracranial hemorrhage um, in the earlier trial, the, the rate of, uh, of that was actually higher in the control arm than in the ECMO arm. Um, so look, there's no doubt that the there are complications that can occur with cannulation and, uh, and bleeding probably in general is higher with ECMO, but um, at least the, the overwhelming concerns around ECMO use, I think that's largely uh, beginning to move as we get more evidence um, showing that ECMOs actually can be applied in a, in a safer way. I think one of the, the main areas that's changing is around anticoagulation um, you know, in the older ECMO circuits, um, the oxygenators required a lot of anticoagulation. Otherwise, they would uh, thrombose and, and, and develop a lot of coagulopathy and blood trauma. 
um, these days with the low resistance oxygenators, the heparin bonded circuits, um, it's it's become a lot a lot easier to manage. Now it still has a reputation as a fairly high end specialty with uh, high level training required, um, a high amount of cost, a high amount of consumables and resource consumption, and so on. Is that still the case, or is uh, the picture changing? I, I think um, I think it's still true that um, that ECMO programs require a huge amount of training and expertise and. We're talking about some of the sickest patients you'll have in an ICU or, or even uh, in a state when someone is being considered for ECMO. So, um, you know, the, the, there's never two patients that are exactly the same and there's a, there's a lot of experience and um, kind of know-how required to manage it. Having said that, um, you know, these are learnable skills and um there is a, a massive growth in education around ECMO, and you know a lot of the, a lot of the processes can be broken down into smaller problems that can be um, managed at a local level, and, and people can be trained up. And um, so, so I think it I think it is changing. Um, you know, I think moving forward, the growth of ECMO uh, that we're seeing um, for not only in respiratory failure, which I guess we, we could sort of talk about now, but also in cardiogenic shock and also eCPR has meant that a, a lot of other people now are getting interested in ECMO and learning to, to use it. And I think that's great. And I think that, um, you know, it, it, it will continue to evolve. And, and like any new uh, or complex intervention um, with experience and good training, it, it can be managed safely. Where do you ultimately see this going? Is it likely that um, ECMO-type therapies will ultimately become as ubiquitous as mechanical ventilation is? It's a good question. I think um, there's a few a few basic things. So um, you, one of the key things is you need a, a reasonable blood flow in ECMO you know, for, in order for it to work. And therefore, there's, you can't get around the issue of having larger cannulas in patients, and that does bring problems. I think there, um, but having said that, um, you know, I think as the complication rates have fallen, the potential number of patients that could benefit has increased a lot. And that's a little bit of the sort of background to why we are looking at applying ECMO in a less sick cohort and, and even applying it a bit earlier just to see if, if there is a role for expanding the indications that we currently have. So I think it's a good question, and, and hopefully in a couple of years we'll, we'll be able to answer it with some good evidence. Um, Aidan, your, uh, your program of research with Redeem is investigating whether ECMO can be in, uh, introduced a bit earlier in, um, in ARDS, or at least for less severe forms of ARDS. What are the theoretical benefits of using it in these groups? So the problem with current uh, standard of, of care is that uh, when a, a very sick patient is mechanically ventilated in ICU with respiratory failure, um, we, 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 put the, we intubate them, we put them on a ventilator, we sedate them, we uh, provide lung protective ventilation, which is very uncomfortable for patients, so we have to uh, sedate them even heavier. Uh, we have to uh, often we use um, neuromuscular blockade um, and proning, and all of these interventions in themselves uh, have been there. There's some evidence to support them, 
but uh, they also in themselves contribute to the problems that we see in these patients. And we, you know, taking a, a step back, wouldn't it be great if we could support these patients and not have to sedate them and not have to paralyze them for weeks on end, not have to do this lung protective ventilation? And that's a little bit of the rationale where we came to with ECMO is that ECMO can provide extracorporeal gas exchange in patients and you can actually desedate patients, even extubate them while on ECMO and allow them to start to wake up and, and be, be involved in, in their rehabilitation while their lung pathology is continuing to uh, resolve. So um, it's, it's very much, uh, this is what we're trying to do with this proposal is compare um, really which are the worst complications for the patients. Is it the bundle of complications that we get from sedation, neuromuscular blockade and proning or is it the complications we see from ECMO? And we, we, we don't know the answer to that, but I think it's a really interesting question that gets right to the heart of what we do in intensive care. So I guess the potential downside is that they could be exposed to other risks um, that are traded off against the improvements in the risks, as you say, of, of ongoing ventilation and sedation. Are there any other downsides that, that might relate to earlier use of, of ECMO? Yeah, so I think the, the main clinical risks are uh, the risk of bleeding that we've talked about. There is a risk of, um, of desedating and extubating patients, uh, particularly patients with ARDS and poor compliance, is that uh, they may themselves damage their lungs more if we, if we are not going to control their, uh, their lung volumes and their driving pressure like we would on a ventilator. So patient self-induced lung injury is a theoretical concern. Um, the beauty of ECMO is that we can do a lot of the gas exchange in an extracorporeal way, so we actually can reduce the work of breathing through the ECMO circuit. Um, I guess the other big question that you mentioned earlier was around cost. We don't really know um, if this is going to be a strategy that is um, cost-effective. Um, our hypothesis is that in fact, if you can put someone on ECMO, extubate them, their recovery might be faster because they're not ventilated for as long and sedated and uh, weak, and all those things lead to long lengths of stay, which is the main driver of costs in ICU. Um, but having said that, each circuit does cost approximately between two and $5,000. There's a lot of training and, and resources required to keep an ECMO program running. And so um, as part of this trial, we'll do a cost uh, you know, analysis uh, just to, to look at all these questions and just see are we going to break the uh, the budget of the Australian healthcare system by doing this, or in fact, are there gains to be made in in treating these patients in a novel way? Now, in the as part of the um, the Noosa ANZIC CTG meeting, you presented um, your proposal for a phase two trial. Can you tell us about that trial? So the, the idea would be the, the patient population we're looking at is patients with moderate ARDS or moderate respiratory failure, so a PF ratio of um, 150 or less. And it's people who are mechanically ventilated who have um, had probably two or three days of mechanical ventilation and meet the severity criteria that we're talking about. Um, and 
then they'll be once once entered uh, we'll look at doing a spontaneous breathing trial if they pass that or if the clinicians think the patient is on a rapid recovery trajectory then we would exclude them but if if it's a patient that is unable to spontaneously breathe not on a rapid recovery pathway then we'd look at entering them into the study and uh, once entered they would be randomized either to an intervention of um, of uh, insertion of cannulas and commencement of ECMO um, with a, a, a sort of an aggressive program to desedate them and extubate them and, and begin their physiotherapy versus a control arm, which would be to continue what we normally do, which is lung protective ventilation, less than six mils per kilo, um, titration of PEEP, neuromuscular blockade, proning, all the sort of treatments that are in major guidelines. We'll just continue that support. And then if in that group they've, they continue to deteriorate, then they would be initiated on VV ECMO as a rescue indication as opposed to uh, an early indication. And then our outcome is going to be looking at days alive and at home at day 60, which is a more of a holistic kind of outcome measure that will look at things like how long they're in hospital, um, you know, their ongoing neurological and, and, and um, mobility issues, all those things that are important in terms of getting a patient home, which we think is a, is a good marker for overall longer-term quality of life. Aidan, just for those who aren't as familiar with um, the pre-existing data, how does this compare with the studies that have been done to date in terms of inclusion criteria? So the, uh, if I just talk about the OLEU trial, um, in, in that uh, criteria, uh, I, I, the, the patients, it was a similar group of patients who were mechanically ventilated for, I think, 48 hours, but in that group, the severity criteria uh, included a, a PF ratio of less than, I think it was 80 for six hours, um, or a, a CO2 that was over 60 with a pH less than 7.3, so quite a, a different, much sicker population. Finally, Aidan, what are you seeking to learn from this trial that will ultimately go on to inform a larger and more uh, definitive phase three trial? I guess the first thing is this is a pretty novel application um, of ECMO in a, in a novel group of patients. So the first thing is, um, can we identify these patients? How many are there? Um, can we? Is, is it feasible to put these patients on ECMO? Um, what is what is the resources and the impact on ICUs that have it? Um, we'd also like to look, obviously, see some signals around um, benefit for the patients. So particularly around um, early extubation and mobilising. You know, is this feasible strategy? Um, we do have some clinical experience doing this and, um, and there's publications out there showing this, but, I mean, I guess we just need to prove in the Australian setting, is this a feasible strategy? Um, and then, yeah, as you say, we, we would like to get all of this information, um, prove that the protocol is workable and um and feasible, and then uh, use that to go on to look at more of a practice-changing phase three trial. Aidan, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast to share your thoughts about this uh, important area. Thanks so much, Todd.
Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, visit our website at oslocommunity.com.